In 2010, the number one pick in the Major League Baseball draft was Bryce Harper. Harper received a signing bonus of more than $6 million. That same year, pick number 451 was a pitcher named Mike Bolsinger. He got less than that. I signed for $1,000 with a billion-dollar organization, so... $1,000. I think it was $667 after taxes. So they don't have that much invested in you. You make jokes about it. It's like a bucket of baseballs for them. (laughs) A player like Bryce Harper is basically assured of relatively quickly making it to the majors and staying there. That wasn't true for Mike Bolsinger. As a 15th round pick, Bolsinger only had about a 10% chance of ever playing in the majors at all. He would have to fight his way up the minor league ladder through outposts like Reno and Yakima and Mobile. It's a very lonesome time, especially in those lower levels when you're in cities that, you know, aren't the best uh, to be at. I mean, it's it's a team sport, but realistically, you're trying to almost kind of look out for yourself and do as good as you can so you can move up to the next level. Against the odds, Bolsinger actually reached the big leagues in 2014 as a starting pitcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Then he started bouncing around, between the majors and the minors, and between organizations. By 2017, he was with the Toronto Blue Jays, his third major league team in three years. He had become a journeyman, working to hold on to his place in baseball's precarious working class. 29 years old, so you're getting up there. You're not that prospect anymore. I mean, I guess I was really never a prospect, so you're not that young anymore. But, you know, in my eyes, it was, you know, how can I make these guys still want to stick with me? Bolsinger was the type of player that a baseball reporter like me seldom writes about or pays attention to. He was a guy a manager might tap to come into the middle innings of a game that was already shaping up to be a blowout, a game that no longer mattered. But every single time Bolsinger pitched mattered a lot to him. His major league career hung in the balance every single time. For me, it was like, I got to perform. I got to do well or I'm out of here. On August 4th, 2017, Bolsinger and the Blue Jays were in Texas playing against the Houston Astros. During the bottom of the fourth inning, the Jays' manager made a call to the bullpen. Mike Bolsinger will come on. Curveball for a strike. That's his best pitch right there, that slow curveball. He's got some bite to it. Gonna have to mix it up against the Astros. This is a free-swinging team. They don't strike out a lot. The Blue Jays were already losing to the hometown Astros 7-2, which wasn't a big surprise. The Astros lineup was stacked with stars. They had new stars like Alex Bregman and Yuli Gurriel. They had veteran stars like Carlos Beltran and Brian McCann. Three of the Astros' biggest stars, Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, and George Springer, weren't even playing that night. The Astros already had a 15-game lead in the American League West standings. They were a juggernaut. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were unbelievable. From what you see, (laughs) the runs they were putting up, um, in my head, I was like, this is the best team in baseball. Houston has a very good offensive approach. They can do everything. 
first in runs per game. Home runs, home base, plus slugging. They also have the fewest strikeouts. Most home runs, fewest strikeouts. That doesn't happen very often. Very well-disciplined hitters at the plate. Bolsinger entered the game with a man on first and two outs. His immediate task was simple. Just get one out. I mean, in theory, it should be easy. There's another one deep to right. is back. This one's going to go. But it wasn't easy. After walking his first batter, the second hit a three-run homer. Then the Astros really started pouring it on. They just kept getting hits. Well, there's Beltran jumps on the first pitch and that Laying off pitches. McCann takes the third walk of the inning. Getting hits. There's another base hit. Beltran's around third. He's going to score. I'm trying to remember a time I was rocked more than that, and I just don't remember a time. This is a pitching coach's nightmare. nightmare. It's not just the Blue Jays. The Astros have been doing this to everybody this season. There's another base hit. McCann's being waved around third. And he'll come in to score. You know, in my head, I was like, man, what do I got to do to get out of this inning? Bolsinger threw 28 pitches to the first seven Astros he faced. They only swung and missed a single time. The eighth batter was Alex Bregman, the dangerous young slugger. With the bases loaded, Bolsinger was desperate not to give up a grand slam. So he turned to his bread and butter, his slow looping curveball. But Bregman was ready for it. At that point, I was like, well, what else is new? Everyone else is hitting everything off me. Might as well just go over the fence. This ball is by Steve Pierce to end the inning. Bregman hit it to the wall in left center. But the Astros sent 15 men to the plate. They scored nine runs on eight hits and blow the game wide open. The inning was finally over. It had been a productive one for the Astros. But it was also just another inning in a season when they'd been dominating everyone. And as for Mike Bolsinger... I was truly embarrassed coming out of that inning. You cannot pitch like that and expect to be in the big leagues, especially when you're in a situation like me or a pitcher like me. He had gotten his one out, but not before allowing four runs on four hits and three walks. As Bolsinger trudged off the mound in Houston and then into the clubhouse, he was pretty sure he knew what would happen next. I started actually tidying up my locker just because in my head, I was like, man, like I'm getting sent down 100%. You can't pitch like that. I was going to get sent down and I wanted everything nice and organized so I could just put it as quickly as I could in my bags. The Blue Jays manager told Bolsinger what he already figured. He was being demoted to the minors. Triple-A Buffalo. Bolsinger picked up his things the next afternoon. I literally walked out of the front door of their stadium <laughs> right before the game. I, there was a couple fans coming. But yeah, I just kind of walked out there and I waited for my, my wife to pick me up with my baseball bag in my shoulder and, and got in the car and went back home. Mike Bolsinger pitched well in Buffalo, but the Blue Jays didn't call him back up. And no other big league club called that winter either. Then he finally got an offer. 
in Japan. His wife was pregnant and it was so far from home, but he wanted to keep playing baseball somewhere, so they went. Bolsinger played two seasons for the Chiba Lotte Marines, then came home in 2019, once again jobless. That slow curve he delivered to Alex Bregman, it would turn out to be the final pitch he'd ever throw in the majors. Sometimes he thought about his last taste of the career he'd worked his entire life to build. Mostly, it was humiliating. He'd thrown the ball well against the Astros. It just hadn't mattered. I remember in the interview after the game, I told the reporter, I was like, man, it's just like, it was like they knew what I was throwing. Like, they were all over my stuff. There was nothing I could do. Overall, Bolsinger accepted his fate. He'd just been beaten fair and square by a really good team. He hadn't sensed anything unusual. He certainly didn't remember hearing anything unusual. In fact, neither he nor virtually anyone else would hear it until more than two years after the Astros had destroyed him. It sounded something like this. It's a low bass sound. Here it is again. It was the sound of a secret. The sound that would disgrace the Houston Astros. It was the sound that would spark the most explosive baseball scandal in decades. And it was the sound that would send me on a search for answers. What had the Astros done? Who in the organization had known about it? And when did they know it? What did it say about them as a team and about baseball as a whole? And why had everyone, including me, missed it entirely? Because in some ways, I'm more than a journalist investigating a scandal. I'm part of it. I'm Ben Ryder, and this is The Edge. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. is The large valve used to control wellbore fluids on oil rigs is this preventer. The Astros could have used one. Katie? What's a blowout preventer? You are right. And with that... If Mike Bolsinger had pitched against the Astros just a few years earlier, he would have encountered a very different team. Back then, they were an easy target, and not just for Alex Trebek. Starting in 2011, they had the worst record in baseball three years in a row, with over 100 losses each year. They had earned nicknames like the Lastros and the Disastros. Some of their games had local TV ratings of 0.0, which meant that Nielsen couldn't confirm that a single Houstonian had watched. The low point came at the end of 2013. And that ends it, and the Yankees sweep the Astros. Sending Houston home with a 15-game losing streak. 
No team had lost as many games in a row to close out a season since 1899. The worst part of the streak was a play that made the highlight reels for all the wrong reasons. And finally, the play that will live in infamy for Jonathan VR of the Astros last night against the Reds. He's going for a double. Head first slide, and he gets a face full of Brandon Phillips' derriere. The play instantly earned an unfortunate nickname. Oh, the butt slide. Do I have to talk about the butt slide? In 2013, Julia Morales was in her first year as the on-field reporter during the Astros' regional TV broadcasts. That meant her job was to keep the viewers they actually had engaged with stories and interviews from the dugout and the stands. You didn't really want to react. Like, you just kind of wanted to swallow it and, and hope that a lot of people didn't see it or that it wouldn't get talked about. But that's, that's not what happened. So hashtag butt take, uh, join in on the hashtag. Taking uh-huh. one for the team. Yeah. Everywhere you turned, everywhere you looked, it was hard. It was hard to be a member of that club, if you will, and, and just not be kind of disappointed or heartbroken. <laughs> it's like there was just no good news. Astros lost 10-0, and it was the Astros' 100th loss of the season. <laughs> what a miserable night for the team. <laughs> this is where I come into the story. In early June of 2014, nine months after the butt slide, I found myself wedged in the corner of a large, dimly lit conference room, trying to type notes as quietly as I could. I was a decade into my career as a writer for Sports Illustrated. I'd been trying to gain access to a room like this one for years. As a reporter, there was nowhere I wanted to be more than in the inner sanctum of a modern baseball front office, so I could watch the organization conduct its business. I kept asking general managers for an invitation. They kept saying no. And then, one said yes. He happened to be the GM of the worst baseball team in 50 years. My name is Jeff Luneau, and I've been living and breathing everything Astros from December of 2011 up until 2020. When Jeff Luneau let me in in 2014, he was still in the middle of his first task as the Astros GM, trying to turn the team around. I figured by allowing a journalist to watch the process and, and decide for yourself. You know, I was pretty confident that you would be accurate and uh, you would assess it in a way that would give the fans a, an insight. Luno was the highest-ranking executive among the 40 people in the room. On one side sat the organization's scouts. They were the men, mostly old ballplayers themselves, who traveled the country evaluating young talent. On the other side of the room, I saw a group of people staring into laptops. They looked like they hadn't touched a ball since Little League, if even then. In their previous lives, they'd been engineers, programmers, and mathematicians. They called themselves the Nerd Cave because they all worked together in a single dark room. The uh, average IQ in that room was higher than the average IQ anywhere else, including my office. I'd come to Houston to write a story about what was happening behind the scenes of this terrible team. The only thing I'd promised Luno was that I would arrive with an open mind. I wondered why the Astros were so bad, and if they had any plan to stop being that way. The conventional wisdom was that they were simply tanking, losing on purpose, to get high draft picks. Was losing part of the plan? 
No. Losing was a result of where the organization was. There really was not another path for at least a few years. Before he started working in baseball, Luna had been a consultant for McKinsey and then an executive in the world of high tech. He ran the Astros less like a sports team and more like a Silicon Valley startup or a Wall Street private equity shop. Except the thing they were making wasn't a new social network or a discount retailer. The objective was to build the type of organization that could create a long-term sustainable winner. You'll learn more about what exactly they were doing in our next episode. What you need to know now is that after a few days embedded with the front office, I was impressed. This was 11 years after Moneyball, the Michael Lewis book about how the Oakland A's used data analysis to find good players that everyone else had overlooked. To me, Luno's Astros represented the next leap. Nearly every single decision they made, on the field and off, was informed by increasingly sophisticated algorithms, blending human expertise with hard data to get the best out of both. My central takeaway from my time with the Astros was that this was an organization that was designed, top to bottom, to find one thing, an edge. It's about being the best in every area you can possibly be and focusing on the areas that matter the most. They were fixated on finding every conceivable advantage over their competition, in which players they acquired, and how they trained those players, and then in how those players performed on the field. In fact, they talked about finding more than just an edge, more than even a cutting edge. They were going for the bleeding edge. You stretch a double into a triple, and you have to slide in the gravel, and you cut your elbow, and there's a little bit of blood involved. If you're a base runner and you never try and stretch a double into a triple, you're being very conservative and you don't want to get thrown out. And that fear of getting thrown out prevents you from taking what can be really rational risks. As long as you make it 70 to 75% of the time or higher, you're actually creating value for the team in terms of runs and wins. It's just applying that same principle to other decisions. And that's the bleeding edge. Sure. Yep. At the time of my visit to Houston in 2014, Luno's efforts hadn't added up to anything other than national scorn. Even so, I went back to New York and wrote a 5,000-word feature that explained why the Astros were onto something and why it could work. Before the story ran, my editor asked me to estimate the year in which it would all come together. After a day or so of projecting how the Astros players might develop, and anticipating moves Luno might make, I gave him my best guess. And so, at the end of June of 2014, the issue containing my piece hit mailboxes across the country, with a cover that made a bold prediction three years into the future. Your 2017 World Series champs, the cover proclaimed, next to a photo of rookie George Springer in mid-swing. There's the cover of Sports Illustrated, very clever, 2017 World Series champs, with the old Astro uniforms, too, and Ben Ryder wrote the story for us. The cover, and especially the prediction, was widely ridiculed, and I made the rounds trying to justify it. Some franchises give you the access, and then they get a little nervous when that story comes out in the magazine. Are the Astros okay with all the access they gave you and how you presented the story as far as the rebuilding of the franchise? I think they are. 
they do have a lot of proprietary metrics that they use, but this is in many ways the most transparent organization out there. They're not hiding what they're doing from their fans. They're not hiding what they're doing from the media. They're rebuilding, and I think allowing me in uh, to tell their story in this way really, really is part of that. Obviously, it's pretty good publicity, too. Now they just have to live up to the cover billing of 2017 World Series. Now, I, I, I'm the jinx with Springer. Watch him hit one home run the rest of the way. <laughs> and you guys are known for that. How do you jinx a team that's lost like 600 games you the past three can. years? Ben, great job. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. The famous Sports Illustrated jinx holds that anyone who appears on the magazine's cover is screwed. But it felt like that couldn't possibly apply to what was already the worst baseball team in half a century. But in the span of a single month, a badly strained quad put George Springer on the disabled list. Their top prospect, Carlos Correa, broke his leg in the minors. They failed to sign their number one overall draft pick, a high school pitcher. Their internal database was hacked by what was then an unknown party. One of their minor league ballparks was surrounded by floodwaters. In Davenport, Iowa, the Astros minor league ballpark is now an island in the Mississippi River, thanks to flooding. While another caught on fire. The Lancaster, California Jethawks lighting their outfield fence on fire by accident after a malfunction during the fireworks show. Jeff Luno and the rest of the Astros front office were ambivalent about the cover although not for superstitious reasons. The deadline I'd set for their rebuilding effort was more ambitious than the one they'd set for themselves. Part of me was happy because, you know, seeing George Springer on the copy of Sports Illustrated is a great outcome. And then I saw the title and I thought, uh-oh. I forgot to tell Ben that we weren't supposed to win the World Series until 2019. He's got it a little bit early. That's gonna put a lot of pressure on us. Julia Morales welcomed the idea that Astros games might actually become watchable. It just felt more of like a, a story of like, hey, things are really going to turn around soon. And, and if they could turn around by 2017 and this team is winning ball games or having winning records, that would be great. Um, but it happened a lot sooner than we all expected. It happened the very next year. In 2015, the Astros started to win a lot. It, it switched. It was like a light switch that went off. They even made the playoffs. Let the celebration start as the Houston Astros are going to the wild card game. It, it, it's like a dream come true. Everybody knows that we've been, we've been battling for the last couple of years to be in this situation, and we want to change the fans of everybody. <laughs> The next year, 2016, brought with it another winning team and a near playoff miss. Then came 2017, the team Mike Bolsinger faced, the juggernaut. How do you describe, like, how do you say that they murdered people nicely? We couldn't even put it into words. I mean, you had to see it to believe what they were what they were doing. Deep drive, right field. This is going to show America's gets on ice as his grand slam. <laughs> it was just, and it didn't stop. You know, it was once they once they started and got going, they could not stop. It was a it was a freight train, and it was just get the heck out of the way. It was all those things that the teams had done to them in 2013. It finally felt like they had flipped it around and done it to everyone else in 17. It was almost like, you know, you knew they would win. You just wanted to know by how much. 13 to 8, 
Astros! By late August, the Astros had torn through not just Mike Bolsinger, but also most other pitchers they'd faced. Then tragedy struck their hometown. This is an NBC News special report. Hurricane Harvey. Overnight, after torrential rains battered Texas, residents are bracing for more rain. Tropical Storm Harvey, now a history-making disaster. Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston, driving more than 30,000 people from their homes and causing $150 billion in damage. The Astros couldn't fly back, and what was supposed to be a three-day road trip became a week-long cross-country odyssey. When the club finally made it home, it was more than just a baseball team. It represented the hopes and dreams of a battered city. As Mayor Sylvester Turner said, People need something to cheer for, and we need a sign that uh, tomorrow will be better than today. No better way to do that than for the Astros to play ball. On September 2nd, 30,000 fans made their way to the ballpark through watery streets. Thousands more watched in shelters or on TVs hooked up to generators. Astros manager A.J. Hinch spoke to all of them before the first game of a doubleheader. Hello, Houston. It's good to be home. I want to start out by thanking all of you for being here today. A very special day for us to start the rebuild process of our great city. Now, we wear this patch on our jersey the rest of the year to represent you. So stay strong, be strong, and we appreciate every one of you. Go Strohs. The Astros now had more than talent. They had a rallying cry, Houston strong. They had a purpose. They beat the Red Sox in the American League Division Series. That's hard hit to second. The Astros are moving on to the American League Championship Series. Then they took down the Yankees in a tense seven games to win the ALCS. One out away from a save in game seven. Bird into center. Springer says he's got it. The Houston Astros win the pennant. The Astros had reached the World Series for only the second time in their history. They would face the Dodgers, the team that had traded Mike Bolsinger to the Blue Jays. Each of the first six games was close. Two of them went to extra innings. The Astros won both. With the series tied at three wins apiece, Bolsinger sat at a bar watching to see if his old teammates could pull out the decisive Game 7 against the club that beat him so badly three months earlier. He couldn't help but admire the Astros, but he wasn't rooting for them. The Dodgers, you know, I love every single one of them. It was the greatest organization that I ever played for. So I wanted them to win. But you felt the Astros deserved it. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. 100%. I mean, I think to me, they had the better lineup. It is what it is. Game seven was never in doubt. The Astros raced out to a 5-0 lead by the top of the second inning. And in the bottom of the ninth... Here's a ground ball right side, could do it. The Houston Astros are world champions for the first time in franchise history. The Sports Illustrated cover in 2014 and the article by Ben Reeder, they nailed it. 
Joe Buck didn't quite nail my last name, but nobody cared about that, including me. The Astros weren't just champions, they were likable champions. It wasn't just that they'd been so awful a few years earlier, or that they'd lifted a city after a hurricane by winning the club's first World Series in 56 years. The players themselves were beloved. Jose Altuve, a 5'5 superstar. You know, I think we deserve it because every single guy did something to help us to get over here. The savvy Carlos Beltran. I just wanted to contribute to their career and, you know, I always uh, try to bring them information that they could use. And the stalwart George Springer, who'd overcome a debilitating childhood stutter. To, to, to be heading home holding a, a trophy is, is incredible. Immediately after they lifted that trophy, the graceful shortstop, Carlos Correa, made the most of his moment in the spotlight. And right now I'm about to take another big step in my life. Daniela Rodriguez, you make me the happiest man in the world. Will you marry me? Oh my God! Julia Morales couldn't believe this was the same team she struggled to find a shred of good news about just four years earlier. To think back where we started and, and, and then to be covered in orange confetti at the end of it is, is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. So... You know, nobody can ever take any of that away from me. It was the, the memories that I have and, and the way we celebrated that year, I will never, ever forget. And i um, so thankful that I, that I was around for it. Sounds like a fairy tale almost. It was. Yeah. It was. I had watched the end of Game 7 from the back of Jeff Luno's luxury suite in Dodger Stadium, and I'd reported from the clubhouse celebration. I had another cover story to write. But the whole time, I kept thinking the same thing. Holy shit, it happened. Three years and four months ago, the cover of Sports Illustrated was the Astros were going to win the World Series in 2017, and Ben joins us. Congrats on the prediction. How was your night, Ben? It was short, Dan. I think I still uh, smell like champagne and cigar smoke from the Astros clubhouse. But, you know, when we made that prediction three and a half years ago, we thought I had a chance, but to see it actually come through, pretty amazing. I was now viewed as a clairvoyant. The story of my prediction made good was worldwide news. And Astrodamus is who? Ben Ryder, Sports Illustrated baseball writer. He made the prediction they would win it, not this season, not last season, not the season before that, but in 2014, he is a hero for our time. ESPN's Outside the Lines mentioned me three separate times in increasingly outlandish ways over the course of the next week. Perhaps at no previous time in the history of the Republic has the press been under such sustained attack. To paraphrase Mariah Carey, sometimes a hero comes along. Sure, you could say the real heroes are Springer and Correa and Verlander, but in these turbulent days for the Knights of the Keyboard, I'll take writer, Ben Ryder. When the official 2017 championship film came out, the credits rolled over the players talking not about the title, but about my old Sports Illustrated cover. Take a look at this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the guy that predicted this? <laughs> I mean, whoever wrote this is a smart guy. Whoever come up with this, uh, I guess, got a vision. He's secretly the heart and soul of our team. Ben Ryder deserves a promotion. This was all a lot of fun, but also a little ridiculous. I didn't know how to respond when strangers asked me for the lotto numbers or stock picks. 
The story I really wanted to tell wasn't about the prediction, but about how the Astros had made it come true. After the World Series, I wrote a book called Astro Ball about how Jeff Luno and his staff had taken the worst team in baseball and made it the best. When it was published the following July, it became a bestseller. Astroball was undeniably a positive portrayal. My premise was that the Astros were a modern organization following a model that applied far beyond the world of sports. My book wasn't an entirely glowing portrait of the Astros. I described some mistakes they made along the way and included skeptical views about some of Luno's more cutthroat tactics. But I wasn't trying to hide the fact that I believed in the Astros and what they were doing. I didn't know it yet, but the subtitle I gave my book, The New Way to Win It All, would eventually take on a different meaning, one I'd never intended or imagined. Mike Bolsinger can throw a baseball very hard for a normal human being, but not for a major league pitcher. In 2017, his fastball averaged less than 91 miles per hour, nearly 10 miles an hour slower than the league leaders. That meant his success really depended on the other pitches he threw, especially his curveball. I mean, that was my whole game. You know, I, I can try and challenge you with a fastball, but I think the last time I tried to do that, I think Stanton hit it out of L.A. Dodgers' ballpark off me. So. Stanton drives it, left field, absolutely crushed, and out of Dodger Stadium. You don't see that every night. That was you? <laughs> that was me. Wait, let's get it right. He hit the roof, and then it went out. It didn't go all the way out. Oh, my. Every pitcher relies on more than speed to try to get hitters out. A key part of their game is being unpredictable. The goal is to force a hitter to anticipate what type of pitch he'll receive next. That guesswork is supposed to keep him off balance. It's also supposed to just make him guess wrong. A 90-mile-per-hour fastball takes less than half a second to reach home plate. During that time, a batter must decide if he's going to swing and where, and then actually do it. If he's expecting that fastball and gets an 80-mile-an-hour curve instead, he's likely to swing too early and foul it off, or miss it entirely. And that's if he's not too confused to try to swing at all. Uh, I mean, I think the hardest thing to do in any sport is to hit a baseball. So a pitcher already has an advantage right there. But... A hitter not knowing what you're going to throw or where you're going to throw it. I mean, it's almost like hitting, unless you're extremely good at it, it's, it's a guessing game. And how did Bolsinger decide what pitch to throw before he threw it? He did it the same way every pitcher does it, by working with his catcher. The catcher is responsible for knowing every opposing hitter's strengths and weaknesses and for suggesting the best ways to attack them. Obviously, the catcher can't call for a specific pitch verbally because the batter would hear him and know what's coming. So he does it using a system of discrete hand signals. A certain number of fingers displayed by the catcher between his shin guards corresponds to a certain pitch. One will be a fastball, two will be a curveball, three will be a slider, four will be a changeup. So with your repertoire, you saw a lot of ones and twos. Ones and twos, yeah. That was, that was really 
my repertoire for sure. Pretty much every baseball team uses those same basic signs, except when there's a runner on second base. A guy on second has a clear view of the catcher's hands across the diamond, and he can then tip off his teammate who's up to bat. So when there's a runner on second, pitchers and catchers have to get creative. On August 4th, 2017, when Mike Bolsinger was pitching against the Astros, almost every batter he faced came with a runner on second. So for those batters, Bolsinger and his catcher, Russell Martin, activated a sign system that was much harder to decipher. Before each pitch, Martin wouldn't just flash a single sign, but a long series of them. I think I probably did sign after two. Okay, so that would essentially mean like he puts down a four, a one, a two, and then the next sign is the pitch. My pitch, yeah. Bolsinger remembers looking for Martin to extend two fingers. This is what is called the indicator. It indicates to Bolsinger that the very next sign was going to communicate the pitch that Martin was actually calling for. Bolsinger assumed that only the Blue Jays knew the code, but the Astros didn't seem mystified by which pitches came at them, in the slightest. For more than two years after that game, as Bolsinger toiled in AAA Buffalo in the Japanese League, he had no idea why his inning against the Astros had gone so badly. He didn't begin to find out the truth until November of 2019, not long after he'd returned to the U.S., The Houston Astros cheated their way to a World Series championship. They have a guy on the record, a guy that was on the team, Mike Fiers, a pitcher, who laid out exactly what they do. The Astros hitters seemed like they knew what pitches Bolsinger was going to throw because they actually did know what pitches Bolsinger was going to throw. The Astros used a camera system to steal signs and alert their hitters in real time as to what pitch was coming. They had stolen his signs with the help of a live video feed of the catcher. You got a camera coming out of center field, a screen at the dugout, and then you're banging on a garbage can to tip players off. Those strange banging noises we heard near the beginning of this episode, the ones nobody, including Bolsinger, seemed to notice at the time, they were the sound of a plastic trash can being thumped by a bat in the hallway just behind the Astros' home dugout. When an Astros hitter was about to receive an off-speed pitch, like Bolsinger's slow curve, the hitter would hear a bang, sometimes two. When the hitter was about to receive a fastball, no bangs. Silence. It was a heck of an edge to take. When you know it's coming, you're, you're taking everything away, especially a guy that is not as elite as a lot of people. In the months following November 2019, the world will learn that the Astros' scheme extended throughout most of their World Series season. That meant they'd used it against over 100 opposing pitchers. But it's possible that nobody got it quite as bad as Mike Bolsinger. An analysis by an Astros fan named Tony Adams would later reveal that the Astros banged on their trash can 54 times that night the most in the game in 2017. Yeah, so I guess you can understand how that would just drastically hurt myself in pitching because me being a off-speed pitcher, I guess you could say that they technically knew every pitch I was throwing that day, if you think about it. I have. <laughs> I'm sure you have too. <laughs> Someone banged the trash can immediately before 12 of the 29 pitches Bolsinger threw 
almost always before one of his curveballs. But the absence of a bang was just as valuable. It meant a fastball was likely to be coming. The curveball that was driven into left for an RBI single? Bang. The fastball that was lashed to center for a double? No bang. And the curve that Alex Bregman blasted, barely missing a grand slam? The last pitch of Mike Bolsinger's major league career? Bang. It makes you mad every once in a while. It, it truly does because you put so much work into getting to this spot in your career. And then you kind of find out, hey, this was taken away by people that cheated. Bolsinger couldn't help but think back to the way the Astros had spoken about their performance against him. Here's audio of manager A.J. Hinch's post-game press conference from that night in 2017. You can hear that he sounds proud. We've had some big innings this, this year. That's a, that's a good one. We, you know, we didn't really need a lot of help from them. They didn't make errors. We didn't, it wasn't a sloppy inning by any means. It was, it was 14 out of 15, really, really good at bats. So fun night to explode. It truly was the most embarrassing moment in my career. 100%. I've never been more embarrassed myself, ever. And now I'm going back and seeing that these people cheated. Didn't care. Obviously not. Especially now that you think about, hey, those interviews after the game where they were kind of bragging about how well they were doing. Well, now I know they were cheating. So to me, that's more of gloating. You know, you're not, you're not talking about how good you are. You're gloating about how you cheated. And it ticks you off even more. Bolsinger wanted justice. And he thought of another athlete who had recently taken a massive sports institution to court, although for very different reasons. It was a Colin Kaepernick case. And I was like, I need someone like that. Like, where can we get someone like that who's not afraid to go up against a billion-dollar organization? And I think my wife actually Googled, looked it up. We emailed their office. We asked them if they could call us. They called us back that same day. Represented by Kaepernick's lawyers, Bolsinger filed a legal complaint against the Astros on February 10th, 2020. In the complaint, he blamed them for effectively cheating him out of his career, seeking damages including the $31 million in bonuses their players got for winning the World Series, which he hoped would be redirected to charity. How you think it's okay would be probably the number one question that I'd ask. Why did you think that this was right? How can you not think this was wrong, what you did? I have questions too. When the Astros won the World Series, I got a text from a friend. Well, now we know what the first line of your obituary is going to say. He had a point. I'd become, let's face it, I'd made myself publicly and inextricably linked to the Astros. I'd written a whole book about them, and I'd missed something really big about how they played the game. After the scandal broke, I spent a lot of time agonizing over my reporting, searching my memory and my notes for any thread I might have been able to pull that would have unraveled the whole thing. I couldn't find one. The Astros front office had given me unique access, but the specifics of the team's sign-stealing scheme had been hidden, even, it would turn out, from many members of the organization. But it became clear to me that I had failed to detect the extent of the Astros' relentless pursuit of an edge. The ruthlessness of it. 
or maybe part of me hadn't wanted to detect it. So I decided to go back to the story that has defined my career and dig deeper to understand the specifics of how the Astros cheated, who benefited from it, who's to blame, and what about it made everyone so angry. This is now the most pivotal moment in the history of baseball. I also want to ask bigger questions about how corruption takes root and how an institution's culture informs the decision-making of those who are a part of it. If you're skeptical, I get it. I am, or at least I was, Astrodamus, the guy who supposedly knew everything about the Astros, except for the enormous secret that disgraced them. But that's exactly why I've spent the better part of the past year working to get the story right, and to try to answer the biggest question of all. What drove one of the most forward-thinking organizations in the history of sports, not just to the edge, but over it? This season on The Edge. There's no reacting in baseball anymore. Like You need to know what a guy is doing in order for you to give yeah. yourself a chance. When I composed the first tweet, I actually got up and walked around for about 10 minutes. I thought, I don't want to do this. People have the right to be upset about it. I'm upset about it. There is no place for this in baseball. Major League Baseball brought the snake into the Garden of Eden and then were surprised when the players took a bite of the apple. The Edge is presented by Prologue Projects in partnership with Cadence 13. The show is produced by Sam Lee and me, Ben Ryder, with editorial support from Madeline Kaplan and Ula Kulpa. Our executive producers are Leon Nafok, Andrew Parsons, Chris Corcoran, and Stephen Fisher. Our score is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Additional music by Billy Libby. Our theme song is by Andy Christens. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks. Fact-checking by Francis Carr. Special thanks to Philip Friesenbickler, Juan Nunez, Michael Rayfield, and Ryoji Yamada. Thanks for listening. See you next time. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.